Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about films. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave in my own personal experiences with the films I talk about. I discuss the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. Today's episode is going to be all about Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1928 silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc. I'm going to talk about why this film is so important to me and why it changed my life. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my patrons, Polina, Lindsay, Olivia, Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Jesse. Thank you so much. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, where it will get better uh, placement in the directory. You can tell your friends and followers about the podcast, or you can just send me an encouraging message. I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the description of each episode. Those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, you know that sometimes I like to talk about more general things at the beginning of each episode. So today I just wanted to talk about a few things that I've been struggling with. Um, I recently recorded the 50th episode of the podcast, and um, I also have celebrated the one-year anniversary of the podcast. These were happy milestones, and I do feel a sense of accomplishment with the podcast. Um, Creating this podcast has shown me um, that I have capabilities that I didn't know about that I can do things and I can trust myself. And for instance, uh, figuring out audio and, and, you know, just putting together an episode, it takes work, it takes knowledge, it takes a lot of things. And so I've certainly been learning things about myself through um, these episodes. I've been discovering what I think about films and how I feel about certain things. And So it's given me a voice. I think it's helped me connect more with who I am and it's allowed me to share my passion for cinema. But at the same time, when you have a podcast, when you share something publicly um, on social media or just out in the world, you can, I, I'm saying you, but I really mean me, I get insecure and I have self-doubt And I've felt this way for much of my life. Um, I'm someone who struggles with self-hatred. I'm someone who struggles with a sense of worthlessness, of feeling like I'm nothing, because that's how people for much of my life have made me feel. I've talked about it often on the podcast that I do feel invisible and marginalized and silenced in my everyday life. And um, so with the 50th episode, I just... I don't know what happened, but, you know, I've been doing this for a year. I look at the metrics and I started to feel like, oh, I don't have a lot of listeners. I don't have a lot of people listening to the podcast. I started to judge myself. I started to feel ashamed. I started 
to compare myself to other people with podcasts where they get, you know, thousands and thousands of listens or even more, you know, there are people who have really successful podcasts. And so I started to measure myself against those people. And I started to feel like I was a failure and that, oh, I've been doing this podcast for a year and it doesn't seem to be growing much. It doesn't seem like people share it a lot on social media. It doesn't seem like it's having any kind of impact or that it's growing or, or gaining any kind of attention. Um, you know, I got my hopes up about a few things that I probably shouldn't have. And so, um, you know, but I want to acknowledge that I want to acknowledge those insecurities that I feel because I think you could apply them beyond this little podcast that I have that in life, we tend to compare ourselves to other people, even though those people have not had the same experiences as us. And those people may have different resources and different connections, different advantages and opportunities in life. You know, this is a labor of love. Her Head in Films is a labor in love. It's small. It's niche. It is what it is. I'm doing it with not a lot of resources. I'm doing the best I can. I try to bring you a quality podcast. I try to infuse it with warmth and joy and intelligence. And I try to give what I can of myself. And so I think that matters. And I think that's an accomplishment. And whether it gets 30 listens or 300 listens, um, what I'm going to try to do moving forward is to not judge myself based on those things. But I'm the kind of person where I do that. You know, I, I compare myself, I feel like a failure, I feel ashamed, you know, shame is a very deep part of my life. I've been reading this really great writer named Brene Brown. And you've probably heard of her. She's done TED Talks. She's been on Oprah. Um, I would not categorize her as self-help. I'm not someone who reads a lot of self-help. Though from time to time I do, I, I will be honest, um, just because life's hard and sometimes it gives me a little bit of perspective or it helps me think about things in a different way. And um, so I've been reading Brene Brown and she does a lot of research on shame. And I knew shame was part of my life. I knew I was someone who was ashamed a lot. But reading her work, it really crystallized for me how much shame is woven into my life, how it is stitched so deeply into me that I don't know how to get rid of it. And so she also writes a lot about vulnerability and how vulnerability is actually our strength as people, that people who can be vulnerable are better able to connect and, um, and to, do the, to, to just connect that it's a really essential part of making those connections with other people. And so what I've realized as I've gone through this sense of worthlessness and self-doubt, I've realized that the podcast itself is a profound act of vulnerability and that that vulnerability is why I, is why I'm feeling these issues of insecurity and worthlessness, because when you're vulnerable you are almost defenseless in a way. And that can be scary and that can be risky. 
And, um, you know, I question my place. I question my ability. I question so much about myself and I don't want to be that way, but I am. And I have a feeling that those of you who are listening might have that as well in your life. But I want to talk a moment about the definition of vulnerable. I went on Merriam-Webster and um, this is what they said, um, quote, vulnerable, this is the definition of vulnerable, is ultimately derived from the Latin noun vulnus, wound. Vulnus led to the Latin verb vulnerare, meaning to wound, and then to the late Latin adjective vulnerabilis, which became vulnerable in English in the early 1600s. Vulnerable originally meant capable of being physically wounded or having the power to wound. The latter is now obsolete. But since the late 1600s, it has also been used figuratively to suggest a defenselessness against non-physical attacks. So I've been thinking a lot about vulnerability and I've been thinking about how it's really an important trait for me. And I want to hold on to it. So even though I'm going through a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-hatred, I want to stay vulnerable. But that can come with a risk. And the risk is to be wounded. It is to be hurt. You know, that as I put myself out here, out in the world, you know, out with this podcast, out with what I tweet or what I share on social media, because I can share personal things and I share very personal things in these episodes. I am putting myself on the line and I'm putting my heart in a vulnerable position where it could be wounded, where I could be wounded, but I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to keep working through these insecurities that I feel because often I think what it comes down to is that I feel like, who am I? What right do I have to talk about these films? You know, who am I? You know, I don't have any specialization. I don't have any, you know, I don't have anything special. Um, I'm not an academic. You know, I read other people's writing about films and I get so jealous and I get so insecure because I really feel like other people are much more articulate and eloquent than I am. But you know what? And I want this to be a lesson to those of you who are listening or, or not necessarily a lesson, but a message that you can feel insecure and you can feel full of doubt and you can feel full of self-hatred, but sometimes you have to push through it and do it anyways. And that's what I'm doing. I'm saying I'm being vulnerable right now and I'm saying that I'm scared and that I struggle, but that I am going to keep speaking up and that I'm going to keep talking about films, even though I feel like I'm nobody and that I don't really have anything interesting to say. But at the same time that I feel this self-hatred and this self-doubt, I'm going to try to build in myself some kind of confidence and some kind of belief in myself, or I'm going to try to get it back. And that's important too, is to realize when you've lost something, you know, and how can you get it back? How can you rebuild it? How can you reconstruct it? And that's what I'm trying to do. And I just want to be open about it that of what I'm feeling right now, of this sense of failure, this sense of shame. But this podcast means too much to me to give up on it or to feel like I'm not good enough. And so I want to keep doing it. And I also want to talk a moment about something that I tweeted about um, recently. 
I got to thinking about my role as a commenter or a commentator on films because I'm nobody. You know, I, I don't have any connection to the film world um, and no background in film. I live in a rural area. Um, I don't have access to this world, you know, a film. I haven't studied it. You know, I, I have no background with it. So what is really important for me is to conceptualize what I'm doing and to define myself in a way that is productive for me. And so I would rather not call myself a critic. That's not what I am. I'm not doing these episodes. And later on, if I start to write about films and do reviews, which I'm thinking about, and I would like to do eventually, um, I don't want to show myself as an authority or an expert. There are tons of people like that online and in different publications. You know, Roger Ebert was one. I, I read uh, Richard Brody and the things that he writes about films. I read Angelica Jade Bastian, who's an amazing, uh, brilliant writer. So I consider them critics. I consider them really smart, intelligent film people. I don't see myself in that way. And I, I would never put myself in that category. What I see myself as is a guide. I'm not here to tell you what to think about a film. I'm not here to say, oh, this is a really great film and this is a really bad film. Um, what I am here to do and what I want to keep doing is I want to take your hand and I want to guide you. I see myself as a guide, not as a critic. So I want to guide you to films that I think matter. And I really love thinking about myself in that way. I want to focus on the films that I love. I'm not saying that I'll never be critical of a film. I've certainly been critical of certain films on the podcast, and I have talked about some of the issues in them. But there's a lot of negativity and toxicity online and in our world in general. And personally, I would rather contribute to something constructive and something worthwhile. And I would rather bring beauty into your life. I would rather guide you to films that I think are really beautiful or profound or life-changing. And so I see my role as a guide and reconceptualizing myself in that way has been really helpful. And it's really... um it's really changed, I think, how I approach the podcast in a way. And so I want to I want to keep trying to believe in myself and I want to continue this mission, which is to really share my passion for cinema. And the only way I can do that is to risk myself, is to make myself vulnerable and um, and put myself out there. It is terrifying at times, and obviously I struggle with it, but I want to keep being vulnerable, and I want to keep being open, and I want to be raw and messy and rough around the edges. I want to share my heart, and I want to speak my truth about these films, and so I just wanted to share a little bit of my struggle lately and what I've been going through, so um, yeah, I, I think that's important to share, and maybe through me, you know, you will see some of your own struggle and, um, and it, it might help you in, in some way.
So before I get into the film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, I want to talk about Joan herself, and I want to give you some historical context, some more information about her, because I think that it enriches the viewing of The Passion of Joan of Arc. To know more about her, and about her life, and about the times in which she lived, and what she went through, and what happened to her, you know... Joan of Arc is an important figure to me. She's someone that I um, think highly of, uh, someone who fascinates me. And I think that she really is a figure that we tend to sort of reinvent every new generation. They, you know, people sort of um, connect to her for different reasons. Um, For me, Joan's story is rich and it's fascinating and it's about so many things. It's about gender, class, faith and religion, civil war, nationalism, power, suffering. There is so much there. She was born in 1412. She died in 1431. She was around the age of 19 when she died. And everything that she did was basically between the ages of 17 and 19. So this is a very compressed and short period of time. What I did was I watched a really interesting documentary that I had already seen, but I watched again to prepare for this episode. And it's a BBC documentary that came out probably last year or the year before. It's called Joan of Arc, God's Warrior. And it is by Dr. Helen Castor, who is a historian. She's done quite a few BBC documentaries. And she also wrote a biography of Joan of Arc called Joan of Arc. So what I love about this uh, documentary is that we're really getting a view of this young woman through um, a female historian, through who, you know, we're getting the perspective of a woman by a woman. And I think that obviously, um, it gives us a much more uh, rounded idea of who Joan was. So when Joan was 13, and everything that I say about Joan is from this documentary. This is really my primary source. And um, because I really trust Helen Castor, and I think that she has a really accessible way of talking about history, of talking about the Middle Ages, which can be a really remote kind of history for a lot of us, because it was so long ago. But she really helped me understand Joan more. So when Joan was 13, when she was in her father's garden, this is the first time that she starts to hear God's voice. And she says that the voice is accompanied by a light. And um, so according to Dr. Castor, the people of the Middle Ages, for them, someone hearing voices is not strange. And I myself, when I was in college and I took a few courses about the Middle Ages and about literature in the Middle Ages in order to complete my degree in English, what really stays with me is that the people in the Middle Ages, for them, heaven and hell, God and the devil are physical things. They are as real as a person standing in front of you. These are not concepts to them. These are not abstract ideas. These are real things to people. What mattered was not that she was hearing voices. As I said, that was not strange. What matters is the source of those voices. Are they from God or are they from the devil? 
So at the time that Joan is living, there is war and upheaval. There is something called the Hundred Years War, which was fought between Britain and France. It lasted from 1337 to 1453. At the same time that Britain and France are fighting a war, there is a civil war in France between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs over control of the country. That's the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. At the time, Charles VI was in power and he was actually very mad. But, um, so there's this war with, so in France, and that's where Joan is born. She's born in a rural town in France. I should have mentioned that earlier. She is a French figure. France is not only fighting a war with Britain, they are fighting a war with each other. The Burgundians are allied with the British. So they're, they're allied with these British occupiers that are in France. Joan and her family are Armagnacs. They are on the side of the Armagnacs. So they are against the British. They are against British occupation. They are against the presence of the British in France. At that time, the Armagnacs, the leader is the French king's son who goes by the name of the Dauphin. That's what Helen Castor calls him. He eventually becomes King Charles VII of France. But at the time before he has coron, before the coronation, he's called the Dauphin. So each side of this war thinks that God is on their side. I tell you all of this because the voices that Joan gets, they tell her to go to the Dauphin and that he will give her an army so that she can drive the British out of France and the Dauphin can be crowned as king. So that is the central thing that comes to her, the voices, the visions, the things that God communicates to her, is that she is going to save France. She is going to drive the British out and she's going to coronate the Dauphin. She, you know, this is unprecedented. She is, and, and what's so interesting about, um, Joan of Arc, not only is she a young girl, she's a teenage girl. She's 17 years old, uh, when she sets out, um, after she, uh, gets this voice and everything about the Dauphin. Not only is she a teenage girl and a woman, she is a peasant. She is illiterate. She is from a rural area. She has no power or influence in the world. But she hears these voices that tell her to go to the Dauphin when she's 17. And she follows them. She sets out into the world. She leaves her small village. She leaves home. And she goes to the Dauphin and tells him the voices that she's had. And he tells her, or he doesn't tell her, but she does um something called the Battle of Orleans in 1429. And this battle is to see if her visions or her voices are true. So he gives her an army that go into Orleans, which has been occupied by the British. And in four days, she um, liberates Orleans. And this victory is seen as a confirmation that God is on her side and that her mission is valid. After the Battle of Orléans, the Dauphin is crowned as King Charles VII of France. Joan is by his side, and this is a huge triumph. 
So now what has to happen is that the country needs to be united under Charles VII. But at this time, as I said, France is deeply divided between the Burgundians who are on the side of the British and the Armagnacs. So the Burgundians are led by the Duke of Burgundy and they look to the King of England. They don't see King Charles VII as a valid ruler. So um, Joan goes into another battle. She wants to um, go to Paris. And so there's all these other battles that happen. There's things that that happen. I don't want to get too deep into it. But she gets, um, during a battle or after a battle, she gets captured by the English. The English see her as a whore. They do not believe her visions. They do not believe that God is on her side. They think God is on their side. So um, she gets captured by the English and the Burgundians, and they want to discredit her. They imprison her. At one time, she jumps from a window, but she survives the fall. Their central goal is to prove that God is not on her side. It is very important for them to prove this. So she goes on trial for heresy. She's not tried for war crimes, even though she was engaged in war. Their central motive is to discredit this young girl and to prove that God is not on her side and is not supporting her. During her trial, there are dozens of men involved in it, over 40, um, from what Dr. Castor tells us. Um... There is a full transcript of the trial, and Dreyer's film is based on this transcript. Much of what you see in the film comes directly from the transcripts and the words that she said. So can you imagine? She is a teenage girl, and she is taking on dozens of men. She is confronting this. Um, I can't imagine the strength that that took, or how difficult that was for her so I think that's also why she's sort of this feminist icon is you know strip the history away and this is a woman standing up to a group of men who she is holding on to her convictions she is insisting that her voices were real that God spoke to her and I'm not a religious person I consider myself an atheist So do I think God was speaking to Joan of Arc? No, I don't. But what puts me in awe is her conviction and her belief in herself and her strength, you know, to leave this little town, to go to the Dauphin, to fight in battles where she is wounded. She's hit by an arrow several times. Um, What she did at her age and with her background is extraordinary. And during um, this trial, you know, these men want to prove that her visions are false and that she's a heretic. What's very interesting that I learned in the documentary from Dr. Castor is that in many ways, when Joan gives details of her visions and the things that she saw, she's actually burying herself deeper into a hole because um, she wants to show them that God communicated with her and that What she is saying is true. So she gives details of her visions. She says that she saw St. Margaret and St. Catherine and they spoke to her. Or maybe that she didn't see them, but they did speak to her. And that St. Michael and angels too. She said she saw angels in the flesh. But the problem 
is that the church considered angels to be spiritual beings. They're not supposed to be flesh and blood like you and me. So Joan's encounters and what she describes to the church, to these men, they sound like demons more than they sound like angels because angels are not supposed to be flesh. So, um, in 1431, all of this is happening. This is when she's captured and when the trial happens. And at one time, she's about to be burned at the stake. And they take her there. And then she admits her guilt and she signs her confession. And she's given life in prison. By this time and throughout her life, throughout at least when she was fighting in the battles, she wore men's clothing. Um, this is something that she did... Um, for a long time and this is also what made her very unusual is that she was subverting these gender norms as well so um, when she signs that confession she takes off the men's clothes she lets her head be shaved there's different things that happen and um, four days go by after that happens but she's back in the men's clothes and she's very distressed over her um, over the fact that she signed that confession there is a belief that in those four days between the time when she signs the confession and when she recants is that she may have been raped. She is very distressed. She is very upset. And she's also upset that she feels like she has betrayed God and she has betrayed her mission by confessing to guilt. Um, so once she says all this, she is again sentenced to death as a relapsed heretic. Um, and she's burned at the stake. And that happens in 1431. Now in 1456, um, 25 years later, France is reunited by this time under the Armagnac king. And they find Joan not guilty of heresy. So she is vindicated about 25 years later. And in 1920, Joan is officially made a saint. She is canonized. So this is someone who lived an extraordinary life, who, as I said, her story is about gender. She had short hair. She wore men's clothes. She wore a suit of armor when she went into battle. She absolutely subverts gender norms. Her story is about class. She is poor. She is a peasant. She is illiterate. She is from a rural town in France. And she ascends to this status of saint and warrior and all of that. It's about faith and religion. You know, she deeply believes that God is communicating to her, that God has given her a mission to save her country, to save France from the British and to take it back from the British and the Burgundians. And um, so she's a hero in that way too, that she wants to save her country from an occupying force. And um, so there's just so much here. There, there is so much in her story. Um, she was very young. She was a woman. She is just such an extraordinary figure. And I think you have to contextualize her, obviously. But often she's taken out of that context and people find other things to admire about her. Whether it's her gender subversion or um, her class or 
her warrior status. You know, people love this idea of a woman fighting, of a woman being powerful. And there is certainly a power to Joan. Um, but there's also a brokenness and a vulnerability because at the end she signs that confession. She becomes so terrified of death, I think, that she signs that confession. But she cannot let go of her convictions and she is ultimately burned at the stake because of that because she will not let go of her voices and she will not let go of the belief that god is on her side and so i'm sure some people would probably see her as this mentally ill young girl but she's someone who stands up for what she believes in and she fights for what she believes in despite the high cost and I think that has resonance for today when we think about our political beliefs, when we think about what are we willing to do uh, when it comes to what we believe in, how far are we willing to go? Are we willing to put our lives on the line for it? So there's so much to Joan of Arc's story. And I just wanted to give you an idea of it. I just wanted to go into a little bit more depth about her life and her times and um, once she's canonized in 1920, that brings her back into the spotlight. It um, People are talking about her again. And that is partly the reason why Carl Theodore Dreyer decides to do a film about her and decides to do The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is released in 1928. So now it's time to talk about this film and to go deeply into it. Usually when I do an episode, I don't always do a lot of research, especially if I'm talking about more modern films, more current films. But when it comes to art house cinema, when it comes to classic films, sometimes I do want to do that work and I do want to do that research, even if it's just for myself or if it's for you as the listener. You know, you may be someone who's never listened to the podcast before. And so you're interested in finding out information about the film. So when it comes to sort of these classic art house films, I am interested in not just talking about my personal reaction. I certainly am going to do that. And I will do that later on in the episode. But I also want to provide context, background information, stories, the making of the film. Because those are things that interest and fascinate me. And so I did some further research, not just of, about Joan of Arc for this episode, but also about Carl Theodore Dreyer and about the making of The Passion of Joan of Arc. And I want to share some of what I learned and, and um, I hope that you find some value in that. I'm not going to go really deeply into Carl Theodore Dreyer. I don't know a ton about him. Um, I, this episode is not supposed to be a biography of him or any kind of thing like that. Um, but there is just some basic information that you probably should know about him. He is considered an important director and he is considered one of the greatest uh, directors probably that ever lived and he was working in the in the very early days of cinema you know cinema for the most part is a pretty young art form and so when we have somebody like Carl Theodore Dreyer he's working at the very beginning almost not the very beginning but in the early days of cinema you know or if you think of somebody like a Charlie Chaplin or an Orson Welles or um you know, all kinds of different directors. Even Alfred Hitchcock did silent films. So Dreyer's work has been very influential to other directors. 
And um, I haven't seen a lot of his work. I've seen The Passion of Joan of Arc. And that might be all, <laughs> um, actually. But I've always been interested in exploring more of his work. I may try to do that on the podcast eventually. But this is the first time that I'm talking about a Dreyer film. He was born in Denmark in 1889. And he died there in 1968. Um, he died at the age of 79 and some of his greatest films are considered vampire. That is, I think a silent film. You've probably seen images of it online, even if you haven't seen the film. His last film was Gertrude. I've always wanted to see it. And I think probably his most famous film, his most influential film is probably The Passion of Joan of Arc. Other directors thought very highly of Dreyer, and he was greatly respected in his lifetime. Um, I subscribe to Filmstruck. If you are a, a cinephile, a lover of art house film, you may want to consider looking into Filmstruck. I don't have any sponsorship or partnership with them. That's not why I'm mentioning it. But I do think that it would be useful and productive for you. And um, something that's really great about Filmstruck is... There's sometimes extras, um, you know, extra documentaries, especially with the Criterion Collection, which is part of Filmstruck. So there is this documentary by Jorgen Roos, and it was made in 1966, and it's only about half an hour. It's only about 30 minutes long, and it just shows Dreyer talking about some of his films and things like that. And it shows other directors meeting him. At one point, we see Jean-Luc Godard meeting Dreyer. Um, and it, there are two directors specifically that, um, that talk about Dreyer in the documentary. The first is Henri-Georges Clouseau, Clouseau. And you may know him as the director of Les Diaboliques, which is one of my favorite horror films. And I'd really like to do an episode about it. Um, I think it's, I watched it last year for Halloween. And so I'm thinking about maybe this year for Halloween talking about it because I really love that film. He says, quote, Dreyer's world is a spiritual, spiritual one, one ruled by love, unquote. And I think that's an interesting choice of words, spiritual, spirituality, because what we will see with the passion of Joan of Arc is a very spiritual film and a spiritual and it can be a spiritual experience for the viewer the way it was for me and I'm going to talk about that when I go deeper into the film and then Francois Truffaut one of my favorite directors says of Dreyer quote he only made a few films but each one is important in the history of film unquote so Dreyer was greatly respected by a lot of other directors and he was hugely influential and in that same documentary um, by Jorgen Roos, um, Dreyer talks about the passion of Joan of Arc. And I wanted to share the, the quote and what he says. And it, it gives you an idea of the set that was built for the film. It was all like one set. Um, and it was very uh, unique, this set. And, and there was a lot of money spent on it. And he says, quote, we painted the decor white to create a distinct style. The actors' faces stood out well against the white background, which kept the viewer's attention. The flat white surfaces didn't distract. The script was taken practically directly from the transcript of her trial. Lines followed one after the other like blows in a sword fight. 
Translated to film, that meant that each line corresponded to a close-up. The speed of the dialogue called for a stream of close-ups with corresponding text. It was the only way to give the audience an impression of what really happened. The public became part of the snide way in which the interrogation of Joan of Arc was conducted. Unquote. So, he says a few things in here. He talks about the close-ups. The film is known for its close-ups and how it is told primarily through um, Maria Falconetti's face. She's credited in the film as Maria Falconetti, um, but I'm going to talk about her in a minute. Her face is so expressive, and the faces of the judges as well as they're interrogating Joan. That is a huge thing that this film is known for. It was known for its set design as well. Very sparse, very stark, very simple. Um, everything about the film, I think, is stripped down, is raw, is um, just beautifully simplistic in a way, because it really is about the human face and about the human body enduring suffering, I think. And that's what Falconetti conveys with her face, I, I think, as well. And I think it's interesting that he says that about he really wanted to implicate the viewer in the trial and in the interrogation of Joan of Arc. And there's also a piece that Dreyer wrote called Realized Mysticism in the Passion of Joan of Arc. And you can read this on the Criterion Collection website at criterion.com. And he talks a bit more about the film. He says, quote, I did not study the clothes of the time and things like that. The year of the event seemed as inessential to me as its distance from the present. I wanted to interpret a hymn to the triumph of the soul over life. What streams out to the possibly moved spectator in strange close-ups is not accidentally chosen. All these pictures express the character of the person they show and the spirit of that time. In order to give the truth, I dispensed with beautification. My actors were not allowed to touch makeup and powder puffs. I also broke with the traditions of constructing a set. Right from the beginning of shooting, I let the scene architects build all the sets and make all the other preparations, and from the first to the last scene, everything was shot in the right order. Rudolf Maté, who manned the camera, understood the demands of psychological drama in the close-ups, and he gave me what I wanted, my feeling and my thought, realized mysticism." Unquote. So it's very interesting how he was not really interested in, you know, getting the clothes right or or attention to detail in terms of the time period. Although from what I've read, the costumes are uh, correct. But um, I think with so many films that are like period dramas, um, the past still always seems so far away and remote and closed off to us. And, and it can seem artificial there can be an affectation about it but this film it is so stripped down and so bare even the actors are not allowed to wear makeup and so what we see is I think we feel a direct connection with the past that even though this film was done not the film itself um the um the the story itself took place, you know, in the 1400s, you know, 600 years ago. It took place hundreds and hundreds of years ago. 
what Dreyer does is make that time feel real to us. And it's interesting. Um, Pauline Kael um, reviewed the film in her book, 5001 Nights at the Movies. And she mentions a quote by Jean Cocteau, who was a director, a writer, um, a French director and writer, and um, a, a sort of part of surrealism. And he's, he's a wonderful artist. Um, he wrote what, what Kale says, quote, Cocteau wrote that this film seems like an historical document from an era in which the cinema didn't exist. Unquote. And so I think that's really interesting how it feels like this film is really capturing the Middle Ages. You, It's hard to explain, but you feel completely pulled into it. And it does feel like you're glimpsing something that really happened, that you are glimpsing the time period, and that there's really no distance between you and it. He really closed the distance of time, I think, in the film. He did not let the actors wear makeup, so we see their bare skin. It makes Joan flesh and blood, I think. It makes it again, it makes that time much more vivid and real to us. And he's interested in human flesh and skin and um, the corporeality of Joan of Arc and of the actors. And, um, He's really centering, I think, the body and the flesh in this film. Even though there is a mysticism to it, even though there is a spirituality to the film, it's also very grounded in the body and in the human being. Um, just a few words I want to say about Maria Falconetti. There's not a lot known about her. There's not a lot out there. Her daughter wrote a book about her. Um, her daughter's name was uh, Helen uh, Falconetti. Unfortunately, it's in French and it's over $600, so I had no access to it, although if it was in English translated and available at a decent price, I would buy that book because I'm obsessed with Maria Falconetti, and I am obsessed with her performance in this film and because I'm obsessed with this film because it was so life-changing for me, and um, so... We don't know much much about Falconetti. For some reason, she's credited as Maria Falconetti, but her real name seems to be Renee Jean Falconetti. So I'm not sure why Maria, why she was known as Maria Falconetti. I choose to use Maria Falconetti because she is credited with that name in the film. And so people who have seen the film and maybe haven't done a lot of research they think of her as Maria Falconetti. I do, personally. But apparently that's not her name. She was born in 1892 and she died in 1946. Um, Dreyer found her while she was playing a comedic role on stage, which fascinates me that here is this woman known for her a very raw, psychologically searing, um, dramatic role. And... Um, she was a stage actress who did comedies. I mean, for much of her life, she did comedies. She had no interest really in cinema. She never did another film after The Passion of Joan of Arc. And what's also interesting is that she's about 35 when she plays Joan of Arc. Joan, as I told you, died when she was around 19. So we have this woman who is 
playing a young girl. And, and for me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect it at all for me. There is something youthful about Falconetti, I think. I guess with maybe the short hair, it sort of makes her look like a, like younger. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I think it's interesting that she's like in her thirties and she ends up playing this teenage girl, but I think it works. I really do. So, um, a little bit of inf background information about the film itself. It's released in 1928. It is based on the trial record itself. There were several, um, interrogations, but from what I've read, you know, Dreyer compressed it into just a few scenes or one particular interrogation. He was asked to make the film by Societe Générale de Film in France, and they invited him to make a film, and he decided to choose Joan of Arc. As I said before, she had been canonized in 1920 and made a saint, and so obviously I guess she was sort of in his mind. He did over a year of research before he started the film. Um, the film that was eventually released was actually edited because of government censorship and the Archbishop of Paris. They did edits. They took things out. In 1928, a fire at the UFA studios in Berlin destroyed the original negative of the film. Um, there were only a few copies made of Dreyer's final cut. The final cut would have been the one that the censors and the Archbishop had not touched and had not edited. Um, so only a few of those existed and they were thought to, thought to be lost really. Um, but one of the final cuts was actually found in a mental institution in Oslo, Norway. And so that's how it, it appears. That's how we kind of have the final version and we know the version before all the edits happened. <clears throat> so... That's really all I wanted to say about the making of the film, some background information, you know, in case you were interested or you were curious. I thought when I was doing the research, I was actually really fascinated to hear about different things. I think people would be really surprised to know how many silent films were lost to fire. We've actually lost a lot of films, a lot of our cinema history, our history of film, our knowledge of it has been lost, unfortunately, because of fires or damage or destruction to these films. It makes you realize that so much of, of history in general is can be haphazard. What survives, what gets preserved. And unfortunately, The Passion of Joan of Arc was part of that in some way. You know, if that final cut hadn't been found in Norway, we really wouldn't have the film as it exists today. Um... So I wanted to give you this background and this context because I think it enriches the viewing of the film to know why is this film important? Um, who is the man behind the film? You know, who was Maria Falconetti and all that? I just think it enriches our understanding of the film. And I think it's very fascinating. Before I get into an analysis of the film, I want to talk about my first experience with the film and how life-changing it was. I wish I could remember the year. I don't know. I can't tell you what year it was. I can give you a range. Um, 
I took a high school film appreciation class when I was a teenager, when I was about 15 or 16. And I was born in 1989. So I would have taken that class around 2004 or 2005. I can't say when I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc. I want to say it was after that class. Um, but it could have been before. I saw it one night, and I can still remember the night. It's this vivid in my mind. And I'm someone, I don't remember a lot of stuff. I don't have a really great memory. Um, I'm really terrible with years and dates and things like that, which is why I can't remember the year when I saw the film. But um, it just, it sticks with me this moment. I was in the living room of my house, my childhood home, uh, that I recently lost, um, which has been really painful. And I was watching Turner Classic Movies, which is, for those of you who don't know or are not familiar with it, it's a television channel that shows classic films, old Hollywood films, black and white stuff, um, than anything considered classic. And sometimes they'll show the occasional art house or European um, world cinema sort of uh, stuff. Um, and this was when Robert Osborne was alive. He recently died, um, I think last year. And he was like the host um, of the channel and he would introduce films. He would do very short introductions to the films. And these were really essential, I think, because there's so many films out there. You don't always know where to start, but Robert Osborne was someone who um, was a kind of guide himself and would um, nudge you sometimes and introduce you to films that you didn't know about or give you information about beloved films that you had seen. He was just a treasure. And, um, I think, uh, I mean, I will always cherish my memories of seeing Robert Osborne on Turner Classic Movies. It's a really important part of my life. And I watched Turner Classic Movies growing up. Um, but I wouldn't say I became a cinephile until later in my life, until probably 20 or 21, which was around 2011. That's when I got really heavy into art house cinema. And that came about through La Jetée by Chris Marker, which I intend to do an episode about. The passion of Joan of Arc comes before La Jetée. It comes when I'm probably in my late teens, I would think. And... If I'm remembering correctly, you know, I, I don't know if I'm remembering everything perfectly, but I do know that I saw the passion of Joan of Arc before the internet. La Jetée happened in 2011 with the internet. Um, I got introduced and introduced to European art house cinema, mainly through blogs and social media and things like that. The Passion of Joan of Arc comes before I ever have gone on the internet. It comes before 2010, because 2010 is when I had my own um, sort of personal computer. It's when I got on Facebook and things like that. 
I didn't have a computer growing up. So the internet came into my life very, very late. Um, computers came into my life very, very late. So the passion of Joan of Arc comes when I am reliant on Turner Classic Movies, on cable television, and Blockbuster, and, you know, things or DVDs, and things like that to discover cinema. And Turner Classic Movies was a central part of watching films. So I know that it comes, you know, probably between 2004 and 2010. This is when I see The Passion of Joan of Arc. I wish I had a year. But I remember being in the living room. It was the night I was alone. I was by myself in the living room watching Turner Classic Movies and Robert Osborne came on and he was talking about this film and I got very interested in it. And, you know, if my memory is serving me right, I could be totally off. But, um, so I watched the film and I never watched silent cinema. I, I, at that time, I want to say I was not really knowledgeable about cinema or anything. Like I say, I can't remember if this came before or after that film appreciation class. Cause I would say that high school class really awakened me to the fact that cinema could be an art form, that it could be more than entertainment. But I don't know if there was a specific film in that class that just jolted me, you know? I I liked the stuff we watched. We watched Singing in the Rain, which I loved. We watched Some Like It Hot, Casablanca, I think. So we watched films that I really loved and enjoyed. So I think that was part of me awakening a bit. But when I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc, something else happened. Something else absolutely happened. And so this film was a revelation to me, and it was life-changing to me. And when I saw Maria Falconetti on the screen and, and watched this film, um, I was moved. I was overwhelmed by emotion. I felt such a connection to her. And um, it, it's hard to even put it into words. And I wish I could describe it. But this is why I say that The Passion of Joan of Arc is my favorite film of all time. It's kind of tied. I really love The Passion of Joan of Arc. I also love um, Christoph Kieslowski's The Double Life of Veronique, which I tried to talk about on the podcast. I don't know if I was successful in my episode on The Double Life of Veronique. But um, I, I say right now that those two are tied. But The Passion of Joan of Arc is really probably above the double life of Veronique because it lives in the realm of pure feeling and pure emotion. And it is an experience that I can't explain. It was, you know, I feel like I would have to revert to cliches, you know, like it was a lightning bolt or it was an intense experience and it was almost religious or spiritual it was the moment at which I really, truly, fully was awakened to the power of cinema. And I just can't put it into words. And I think that's okay. I think there are experiences in our lives that defy language. And 
um, we just carry them with us and they just sort of live inside of us and we will never fully be able to communicate why this particular film or this particular poem or this particular book changes our life. I mean, and I know people say that a lot. Oh, this changed my life. This changed my life. But there are things that you experience where you are different afterwards. And I was different after the passion of Joan of Arc. I was um, enchanted by cinema and I was in love with cinema and my feelings for film deepened. Um, I had not fully yet found the European art house cinema of 2011 and beyond where we're talking about La Jetée and La Ventura, um, you know, Fellini, um, Kishlovsky, you know, I had not gone into that yet. Um, but this was just an eruption. This was an explosion in my life, um, and completely changed me. And, I'll always love this film because it gave me the gift of cinema. It gave me this beautiful, magical, life-changing art form that has given me comfort in my life, that has given me joy, that has given me beauty, um, that has given me purpose and meaning. Um, without the passion of Joan of Arc, I don't think I would be a cinephile. I don't think I would be who I am today. Um, I don't think I would have fallen in love with cinema. I think, I think for every cinephile, every person who is passionate about films, there is just that moment where you're never the same. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard to be in the world and to love cinema so much because Cinema for a lot of people is just something to watch and it's entertaining and it's something to laugh at or whatever. And for a cinephile, you know, cinema is like life and death. You know, this is like, this is why I live. This is how I survive. You know, it's, it's on a completely different level and other people don't get that. You know, they just don't get it how it is nourishing to your soul. And, um, it just, yeah, I mean, it's great to know there are other cinephiles out there, but of course we're all like, we all have a different film that did it for us. You know what I mean? For some people, it's the passion of Joan of Arc. For other people, it's whatever, you know, whatever film that might be. And it's interesting because I had a, a job a few years ago and it was a customer service job. And I was in training. I was in the training class for it. And it was a very small group, probably seven or eight people. And they did, we did some kind of exercise where each person was supposed to say what their favorite film was. And everybody said really mainstream stuff. I think somebody said Dirty Dancing, which I adore. I'm a huge fan of Dirty Dancing. I got nothing against Dirty Dancing. And we were going around the room and I had formulated in my mind that I was going to say the passion of Joan of Arc. And I felt um, vulnerable. I felt at risk. Um, and But I felt like I had to say it. I had to be truthful. And I had to, I had to speak my truth. I could have easily said a more mainstream film. 
you know, I could have said Dirty Dancing. I could have said a film that I'm sure everybody in the room would have known. And instead I said, well, my favorite film is a silent French film called The Passion of Joan of Arc. (laughs) And you could hear a pin drop. You could hear crickets, you know. It's not always easy to stand in your truth. It's not always easy um, to be authentic, you know, when you're in a group of people who don't get what you're talking about and don't understand the the passion that you have for something. But, you know, I'm proud of myself that I said it, <laughs> you know, I'm, pr- I am, but you know, uh, they didn't know what I was talking about and I'm sure I came off as very strange and very weird. And I think this story sort of illustrates why it's so difficult for me to like make friends and connections in the everyday world Because I like things like, you know, silent films from the 1920s and, you know, uh, literature in translation and just different things that I don't think the mainstream or the majority of people are into. Um, But, you know, I I tried to be as authentic as I could in that moment. Um, But I had to be honest, that is my favorite film. So I had to say it. Um, but it was funny. I mean, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) like, oh God, (laughs) I just kind of roll my eyes at myself. Like, I can't even believe that I said that in a room of people who were obviously not cinephiles and obviously did not know that film. None of them knew it. I I assure you. So this film is just so central to my life. It's, that's why I wanted to do an episode about it because Everything that came after it is because of it. And I would not be who I am today. And I would not have my the passion that I have for cinema if I had not seen that film. Because that film is what awakens me. It is what um, just infuses me with this love and adoration for cinema. And... um I think I found something in Falconetti's face that just um, resonated with me. You know, the torment, the anguish, the fragility, the rawness. Um, That is who I am in many ways. I'm this very raw, emotional, you know, person. And that's what she had. And she was just, this. her tormented face, to me, it was like the embodiment of what I feel inside of myself, of this torment and this suffering and this anguish that I live with um, because of different experiences and different kinds of trauma that I've been through. So um, if you have not seen The Passion of Joan of Arc, I mean, I'm assuming people who are listening to this have seen it, but if you haven't... um, I think it's a must-see. It is my essential film. It is part of my essentials. I've started to do a list of what I would consider my essentials, and that is number one for me. I think it is a life-changing film, and it was in my life. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to speak uh, just a, a little bit about that moment and what it was like, because I think that's just as important as the film itself, is this experience of the film 
and the way the film lives on inside of the people who watch it. That is what is most compelling to me about cinema is that you watch it um, and that is one film, but then the film continues inside of you. And that to me seems like a second film. Uh, it's, I can't quite explain it, but it's the way these images become entangled in your own identity and in your own life. And, um, I think the passion of Joan of Arc does that and that's what it did for me. And, um, I'm so grateful for this film. I am grateful for cinema. You know, cinema for me is not, it's not a intellectual exercise. I'm not trying to, um, I don't know. It's not a career. It's not, um, it's not a hobby. You know, it is life to me. I mean, maybe it's not life and death, but it's life. It, it makes me want to be alive. It helps me survive life. It, um, it's, it's a gift. And Falconetti and Dreyer and the Passion of Joan of Arc gave me that gift. And I am forever grateful for it. So now I want to talk specifically about the film and I want to share how I feel about it, what I think about it, my own interpretation. And it's very interesting to think about myself all those years ago in that living room as a, probably a teenager, late in my late teens, sitting in front of the television, watching this film for the first time, not having any idea what I was going to encounter or how it was going to change my life. Back then, I would have watched it and probably written in my journal or just thought about it. Um, I'm sure that's what I did. I probably just thought about it for days, and obviously it's haunted me for probably over a decade at this point. And it's interesting to think that all these years later, you know, the interval in between seeing the film for the first time and then revisiting it, which I have watched it a few times since then. Um, but it's still always, I think, a new experience. Um, I think it's been many years since I did watch it. Um, so it's interesting to think um, in the time that has elapsed, how my life has changed, how things are very different, and how now, all this, all these years later, I'm not writing about it in my diary. I'm talking about it on a podcast. And um, I, I enjoy that, and, and it makes me happy to be able to share the experience of the film with those of you who are listening. And um, it's nice to have this outlet, and I'm really grateful for it. So I really want to talk about this film. And, um, so first I want to say, you know, as modern audiences, we are used to cinema being a certain way. Usually we're very used to, um, quick editing, quick cuts. We're used to action and drama, dialogue and sound. We take these things for granted because there was a time when cinema wasn't like that. We have silent films um, at the beginning of cinema. Sometimes there would be a live band in the theaters. 
with the passion of Joan of Arc, this is a silent film. There are versions of it where music has been added, but that was not Dreyer's intention. And um, so I think it's important to respect a director's vision. And if they don't want music added, then I think really the version I saw may have had music, actually. Um, but I watched this on Filmstruck, and the version on Filmstruck is truly silent. There is no music added. So as I was watching, I was thinking about the experience of silent films and how it's such an unusual experience nowadays. Um, there was the artist a few years ago that got a lot of attention because it was a silent film. Um, I don't mind films with minimal sound or that have more just ambient or diegetic sound where it's the sound in the environment um, where the character is or where the film is. I don't mind that, but some people are not used to it. It can be an adjustment, I think. Um, I don't mind slower films. I don't mind films that are contemplative and meditative and slow. Um, I find myself more drawn to them. I wouldn't say I watch them all the time, but I'm getting more interested in, to, in them. And so this is truly a silent film. And it made me think about how, you know, the world today, it's so full of noise and I think sometimes we need silence. I think in in the um, case of The Passion of Joan of Arc, I think the silence enhances the film and the experience. I think the silence allows the images to speak. And, um, and, the, and the silence gives us the space to appreciate those images. And I think we become more absorbed in the film. And there's a purity to the experience. This is a sort of pure cinema. And I I can't remember the quote, but Alfred Hitchcock said something about silent cinema. And I don't know the exact quote, and I wish I did. But he said something like, silent cinema is sort of the pure form of cinema because it is purely of Im about images. There is nothing else there. It is purely um, filmic. You know what I mean? There's no dialogue. There's no sound. Um, and there is a purity about it. And, um, and something else that struck me as I was watching that I was watching it on my laptop in my bedroom, um, late at night. And as I was watching it, because it was silent and there was no sound, the sounds that I heard were my environment. So, you know, my dog sleeping at the end of my bed or, you know, the whir of the fan in my laptop or, um, you know, the rain outside, you know, these were some of the sounds or of my ceiling fan overhead. So when that happened, it made me think about how really the past and the present are overlapping as I watch the film, um, that the past and the present are merging because I am hearing my environment, but then I'm watching this film from, you know, 90 years ago. And I just think that's, it's interesting, you know, 90 years ago when people went to see this in 1928, they saw it in a movie theater, they had a certain experience of it. And all these years later, you know, we're watching it on these smaller screens and the whole experience of it has changed. And it's just something to contemplate, I think. And watching the film again after several years, um, 
none of my love for it has dulled. I mean, it's still just as visceral and just as powerful, I think, as the first time I saw it. And, um, I, for me, it just never gets old as a film, personally. I love it so much. So there are three things I want to focus on in my review of the film. Um, I want to talk about gender, um, how gender plays a role in this film. I want to talk about the body, the way Falconetti embodies Joan, the way bodies are represented in the film. And I want to talk about Falconetti's performance specifically, because I consider this the greatest cinema performance ever, the greatest acting performance. I can't really imagine it ever being equaled in any possible way. Um, this is the greatest to me. This is like the number one performance in my opinion. Um, so those are the three things I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about gender. Because this is a big part of Joan's story, and I think it's why she continues, especially um, in light of the feminist movement that started a few decades ago and that continues, um, and even in light of the recent um, Me Too movement. Um, she is a feminist icon, I think, and gender plays a huge part in her story. She is an illiterate peasant girl from this small town, and um, she follows the voices that she hears. She follows her inner vision. She leads a, an army into battle to save her country. This is a girl, you know, she is a teenage girl who shows the power and strength of women and what women are capable of. Um... I think she was someone who was burning even before they lit her on fire at the stake. She is someone brimming with intensity and um, mysticism, right? You know, she is so connected to God, so connected to her spirituality. It sort of radiates from her, and that's something that Falconetti embodies, sort of the way the mysticism, the transcendence radiates from her very body. But this is a young girl with no resources, no power, and she ascends to this status of a saint, a warrior, a leader, but at the same time she is also vilified as a heretic, and she ends up dying a martyr, really. And I think, and I said it earlier, that I think every generation reinvents Joan for themselves, and they pick which parts resonate for them. In our age, I would say that her subversion of gender norms makes her even more relevant to us, and just the strength she showed um, as a woman. And but it, but her subversion of those gender norms, the way she wore men's clothing, the way she went into battle, the way she cut her hair short, these were things that marked her as very different and as dangerous and as deviant in the eyes of the church. And she is going against the church. She is going against these very powerful religious figures. Um, and if you think about it, she's also claiming God as her own. You know, she is circumventing the priests. She is circumventing the church that often, especially in the Middle Ages, there was this idea that you had to go to church. 
that the priests were the intermediary between you and God. She is saying, God comes to me directly. And I would imagine that's a very dangerous idea. You know, she is saying, God is with me. God is on my side. God speaks to me directly. Um, and they obviously wanted to squelch that. And they obviously wanted to um, discredit her. The judges in the film specifically mention the men's clothing that she wears. They're very offended by it and it bothers them a great deal. And um, it's something that she holds on to. You know, she refuses to give it up. But um, another way that gender is um, infused into the film, into really the story of Joan is the trial itself is this showdown between her and all these men. There are just so many men in the room and um, they want to hurt her. And it's very interesting the way Dreyer portrays them in the film. He makes them look very frightening, very scary. He often uh, lights them sort of darker. They look a little bit darker and, um, you know, Joan has a softer sort of light on her. And sometimes you see her more from above and you see the men more from below, which makes them even more sort of monstrous. But, um, so she's surrounded by men who want to hurt her. And I think this is part of, you know, women's experience is uh, feeling unsafe around men and these men want to diminish her. They want to discredit her. She is really at their mercy and they have a great deal of power over her. And I think that's also something that women can relate to. But she resists them. And she resists through her spirituality, her belief in God. Um, but she's really a woman under pressure throughout the whole film. And you can tell that. She is scared. She's unsure at times. And then at other times, she's very defiant, and she even has moments when she sort of smirks, and that obviously upsets them. She has an inner power, an inner strength, and um, but she's always under pressure. She is in a very frightening experience, and she doesn't know how to navigate it or what to do, because it is very scary. She is alone. She is standing alone. She is saying, these are my visions. This is what God told me. And they want to discredit her. That is their main focus, is to show that she is a heretic. Just as I spoke earlier about Joan's actual you know, trial, this is the crux of it. So I think that's why using the transcript is so important. The transcript is her words. And so I think it's very important that Dreyer gave her a voice and allowed her to speak through her own words in the transcript. And this is what I want to drive home to you and why I think this film is even more important than I originally realized. Because re-watching it in light of the Me Too campaign, in the light of this reckoning that is happening and this exposure that's happening of sexual harassment, sexual violence, gender violence against women, um, that more people are speaking up about and that women are, are, um, you know, 
bringing up the really ultimately this is a film about a woman not being believed about a woman being attacked and discredited about a woman speaking her truth and nobody listening and nobody believing her and her having to stand alone in her truth even though the rest of the world or these particular men these men in power who do not believe her and want to silence her and really um, make her go away and basically destroy her so this film is very relevant. I mean, it hit me like a lightning bolt when I was watching. It was like, this is about a woman who's not being believed. And that is something that has happened for so long. Women saying, this is my truth. This is what happened to me. And men saying, no, it didn't. Or we're not going to believe you. Or we're not going to do anything about it. And Joan fights against that. And she resists it as much as she can within the situation. Another thing about this film that's extraordinary besides gender. I mean, gender for me is so important. So important. Um, I want to talk about the body and the way the body is portrayed on screen. Because this is another thing that makes the film so... It made it so um, extraordinary and really radical and revolutionary when it was made was Dreyer's use of close-ups and also him not wanting to use makeup on the actors, him wanting to really strip them down. And um, I think this is so important. And what it does, especially with Falconetti, is that it takes Joan of Arc out of the realm of myth and it makes her a flesh and blood person. And so these close-ups emphasize her corporeality, her body. You feel like you can reach out and touch her. You feel like you can, you know, uh, wipe the tears away from her face. And like I said earlier, the judges' faces are monstrous and scary. But what's fascinating is that with Falconetti, you can see the freckles on her face. Like, literally, um... So the the film, there's like this texture to it. And it comes from on these different faces, the, the men and Falconetti. It, the texture comes from the wrinkles and the freckles, the scars and the bulging veins. Um, one man has these large moles all over his face. Some of their faces are like pockmarked and things like that. And so um, there's almost this topography of the faces in the film. They are kind of almost landscape in a way. And um, this film relies almost completely on close-ups. It is a film of reactions, a film of facial expressions. Um, I've never seen anything like it, really. And at times, Falconetti is like frozen in these poses and she resembles almost a still photograph more than a film at times. Um, there's just all these little details. Like you can, like I said, you can see Falconetti's freckles, but you can also see dirt in her fingernails. You can see her chapped lips. There is this um, vividness to the verisimilitude. 
you know, that she's got the dirt under her nail. She's got chapped lips. You know, her hair is cut. It's obviously her real hair that has been cut and that's later shaved. So, um, it's just amazing the little details that you pick up on as you're watching. The tears, the tears themselves. I mean, I'm sure they used something. I don't know if every scene is really Falconetti, um, you know, uh, crying, um, they could have used, you know, some kind of substance. Some of it, I'm sure it probably is her crying, but at times the tears almost look too thick. They, you know, um, her eyes are sort of perpetually glassy and glistening with the tears. She's always either crying or sort of on the verge of crying. Um, and even that is beautiful. You know what I mean? It's so... But the tears are very real and very vivid as well. She fears death. And of course, death is connected to the body. And um, she is a deeply spiritual person. But she's also human. And she has the same fears that all of us have. And at one point in the film, she is about to be burned. And she signs the confession because she's terrified of dying. And it's this moment of humanity. It's this moment where you realize she's just, she's just a person and she's scared, you know, and she doesn't want to die. And I think that's a profoundly human moment in her story. But of course, just, uh, you know, just a little while later, she recants. And then she is burned as a relapsed heretic because she, because she confessed, but then she recanted that confession because she felt that she had betrayed God and that she had betrayed her mission. And, and, um, Dreyer, um, shows this image of a skull with dirt in it and then an, a worm in the eye sockets. And I think that's such a powerful image of death. And it conveys the fear and the terror that she felt when she signed the confession. Now, the actual interrogation of Joan of Arc happened over several days, I, I would think. There were several different interrogations, but in this film, it's almost like it all takes place over one or two days. So he obviously compressed things. And then at the end, you have the, the scene of her burning, which um, is another way that the body is emphasized and that the body is present in this film. And it is the obliteration of Joan's body. I mean, she was burned until she was ash. You know, it was basically a public cremation. And so we see how her body was reduced and obliterated and um it's it's a frightening scene it's you know all the people have gathered to watch and there's almost like a carnival or circus performers who are there and at one point there's a baby sucking on its mother's breast and it's it's this very interesting um set of scenes where the whole film we've been focused on Joan and we've been in this very claustrophobic interior space where the trial's taking place. And then all of a sudden with her being killed and the burning at the stake, all of a sudden we're outside, we're in the world, we're with the people who actually support Joan and believe in her. 
and are upset that she's being killed because she wants to save France. She wants to liberate France from um, British occupiers. So, finally, I want to talk about Falconetti's performance um, and seeing her face again when I rewatched it. I had a very visceral reaction. You know, she just feels so real to me. She just feels eternal, that face. Um, and what she does in her performance, she just feels like this tangible person. It's it's an example for me, this film of like, where you, you know you're watching a film, but it just feels like it transcends the screen. It transcends the medium. She just feels eternal to me. Uh, I, I don't even know how to put it into words, but she just feels so real to me. And Falconetti is just raw emotion in this film. It is rawness that has never been seen since. I mean, this is the performance. I mean, any actress working today should watch it, should learn from it, but should also know that she will never touch it. You know, I don't think any actress will ever touch that performance. It doesn't mean that I don't think there's been some great performances by women. Absolutely. Um... You know, I have a list of, you know, female performances that I love from Marion Cotillard and La Vie en Rose and, and Two Days, One Night. I love her in those. Uh, to Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice to Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth. Um, I, I have all kinds of, you know, great female performances, but for me, Falconetti is it. You know, there's just nothing else. The thing is, is that, or I will also say Gina Rollins, I think she's one of the greats, whether it's opening night, which I really want to talk about on the podcast one day. I really want to talk about Gina Rollins one day. Um, Opening night, as I said, a woman under the influence, especially. She's another actress who I think had a rawness about her performances. I would almost be interested to know if she was influenced by Falconetti. But Falconetti in this film is so open. There is no barrier between you and her. I mean, this whole film just feels so close. It just feels... I don't even know how to put it into words. But I feel like Falconetti really transcends the screen. The, The screen disappears. You know, she isn't acting. She is becoming. She is. She just is. Joan of Arc. You know what I mean? I mean, it is the greatest performance of all time. I don't even know how we could argue about it. I guess there are some people that probably don't like the film and don't like her performance. They would say it's histrionic or it's melodramatic or it's too demonstrative or, you know, I mean, I guess there are criticisms of it, but I just can't imagine it ever being equaled like ever. I mean, there's a similar rawness, I think, for Nicole Kidman in Jonathan Glazer's Birth. I bring up Birth several times um, in different episodes. I do want to do an episode about it one day. But that's a similar rawness, and she even has the haircut that Falconetti has. I mean, she might have been going for a Mia Farrow thing, but there's also a Falconetti thing with her hair in that film. But, um... You know, Falconetti just conveys so many emotions, you know. She is this woman facing death. She's facing the terror of death. 
she's facing the questioning of her integrity, the questioning of her visions, the things that she holds dear. Um, she's standing up for her convictions. Um, she's powerful. I mean, she's killed, she's victimized, she's brutalized, but she's also powerful and she is a martyr. But we also see her broken and we see her crying. We don't see her on the battlefield engaging in her heroic acts. We see another kind of heroism, the kind that is interior, that is about resistance, that is about an inner light, an inner strength, an inner spirituality that cannot be touched or broken by outside exterior forces. That is, I think, part of what Falconetti conveys. She is confused, scared, fragile, and defiant all at once. I mean, she conveys a complexity of emotions. Um, there is this pain and ecstasy in her performance. It's as though through pain, she is perfected and she is in contact with something transcendent. I mean, this is a film about suffering. Um, but I think it's about more than suffering. I really do. I think Dreyer would say it's, it's a triumphant film in a way that Joan of Arc triumphed over her oppressors and her judges, that she held on to her beliefs and held on to her convictions. And even though she died, she was triumphant. She was victorious not the people who destroyed her and tried to obliterate her because they didn't succeed. They didn't succeed in destroying her. She lives on. They could not kill her spirit. They could not kill um, what she represented to the people of France who eventually vindicated her and canonized her. She was eventually made a saint. Um, and I want to say also that Something I never realized until I rewatched this film was how much Marion Cotillard looks like Maria Falconetti. Like, other people may disagree, but I was really shocked at it. Like, I think it's the eyes or something. And it's very interesting to note that Marion Cotillard played Joan of Arc in a play, or, or it's like an opera, that's called Joan of Arc at the Stake. And I was able to see a performance of that online it was taped or something it was videotaped and it was it was on a website um and I got to see her doing it and it was just stunning like it took my breath away because I love Marion Cotillard so Marion Cotillard as Joan of Arc was like my dream come true um if you ever you know see it on YouTube or something definitely watch it um, but I just never realized how much Marion looked like Maria Falconetti. But it was really apparent to me when I was watching this time. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a really great film. Like, I don't even know what else to say. I think I've said everything, you know, um, that I can possibly say. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that I contributed something or deepened your knowledge of the film or expanded your knowledge of the film. It's just, it's a sacred 
film to me. It's a monumental film in my life. And it really was the beginning of everything for me. And it was an awakening for me. Um, and it just helped me realize, um, the power of cinema and the beauty of cinema. And I'm so grateful for that. I don't know who I would be or what I would do without films. Um, I really am obsessed with them, I have to say. And, um, I spend a lot of time watching films and, um, it's become such a major passion in my life. And it's weird to think if I had not watched Turner Classic Movies that night all those years ago, and if I had not seen Joan of Arc, that I might not be where I am today in terms of my love for cinema and my, my journey through it. You know, I'm, I'm still learning. I still have so much to watch and so much to see. And, um, I'm always discovering new directors and falling in love with different films. And, um, it's, it's a continuous discovery. I think a dis a continuous learning process because there's no way you can ever see all the films that are out there. And, um, so this film is, everything really it's my number one i think it's one of the greatest films you know falconetti does the greatest performance of all time at this you know so far um so i hope this episode either inspires you to watch the film or gives you more to think about or inspires you to rewatch the film um it's a very personal film for me. It's hard to talk about. Um, I sort of struggled with it and um, didn't know how I would talk about it because it's so ineffable for me, that connection and that experience. And I don't think you can ever fully explain why you connect to something so much and why it changes you or why it electrifies you. But this film does, and it just lives inside of me and lives inside my soul, really. And um, and it gave me the gift of cinema, and I'm so fortunate to have it. And I'm so fortunate to have you, the listeners out there who um, listen to this podcast. If you're a new listener, thanks for listening. I hope that you will come back again. And if you're a regular listener, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it, and I will stop here. <laughs> I have said everything I wanted to say. So, um, until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.